Well, let's, um, let's ask for the Lord's blessing on our time this morning. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, God, we ask you that you illuminate to us your word this morning. Um, God, your holy scriptures, we, we believe all of it is God's God-breathed and profitable for teaching, preaching, rebuking correcting, leading us into all righteousness, God. And, and so we, we are eternally grateful and thankful that you have given us your word. God, I, my prayer for myself and for this people this morning, God, is that we hear your word, we understand it, and we apply it to our lives, we grow in Christ-likeness, God, that you lead us deeper and deeper into a relationship with you, molding us into the image of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God, that is my prayer for myself, and that is my prayer for each and every person here. We thank you, God. Thank you that you shower us with grace upon grace, and we pray all this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Now, I've mentioned before that I'm a bit of an anthropology nerd, and what I mean by that is I like to to look at humanity and study humanity and think about humans and, and, and what we are about. I find it really, really interesting. And, and something that, that I, I've noticed, and not just myself, but others, others have noticed as well, trust me, I'm not that smart, um, is, is that as people, as humans, we're always kind of looking for someone to, to emulate or someone to follow. Um, we're, you could say we're always uh, looking for a hero or, or someone to, to look up to. And we know this is true. If we go to the earliest days of humanity, the earliest human writings, things like Beowulf and the Odyssey and the Iliad uh, by Homer, just to name a few, um, we see uh, these, these heroes in these stories. In fact, if you go to early church writing, or I mean early writing, basically almost every story is a story about a hero. This is true in, in modern times as well. We have uh, great works by, by people like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you have Aslan, the lion, the hero of the story. Uh, who's a Lord of the Rings fan? Anyone here like Lord of the Rings? Okay, good. Most of you. Okay, some of you are like, eh. It's one of the greatest things ever written and produced. I'm just going to say that. Um, amen. Can I get an amen? We have, we've never been a charismatic church, but we're getting charismatic about Lord of the Rings this morning. <laughs> Uh, but J.R.R. Tolkien has these great heroes, like, like, and they're, they're kind of like these heroes, but they're like hobbits, like Samwise Ganji and Frodo Baggins. They're unexpected heroes or unlikely heroes. And there's just something within our human nature that we just want this. In modern terms, I think we, we have sports heroes. Uh, one of mine, uh, greatest athlete of all time, my opinion, is this guy, uh, Michael Jordan. Um, if you think LeBron James is the GOAT, go learn something about basketball. I, I kid, but maybe just a little bit. There's been no greater athlete, in my opinion, than Michael Jordan. I mean, phenomenal athlete. The drive to win, the ability, um, just incredible. I always have looked up to Michael Jordan. Now, if I want to ask you this morning, and I want you to think, think in your mind, who, who is your hero or heroes? What images come to your mind when you think of hero or heroes? Who are those people? Some of you have one, some of you maybe have more than one, and so I want you to hold that image of your mind of who your hero is or your heroes, and then, then, then ask this question yourself, what makes them so? What makes them your hero? Why? 
I believe there's a universal desire for, for a hero built into every man's heart. Um, and I believe that's intentional by God, actually. And today we're going to look at the true hero. Now, the Bible and God's story is actually this great storyline of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And we're actually going to see that, that we have a hero, namely Jesus. We're going to look at that. But we actually get to be a part of this great story, this great narrative that God is unfolding in human history. So let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, verses 13 through 23. I'm not going to put it up on the screens. I'll be referencing verses. You can listen along, but I do think let's open our Bibles together. There's something powerful about doing that. That's Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. It's going to be kind of uh, three quarters of the way through your Bible. So Matthew 16, verses 13 through 23, and it says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man. So we start out here, Jesus and the disciples, are, they're on their journey. They're, they're kind of heading the direction of Jerusalem. They're in Caesarea Philippi. And, and Jesus is going to ask his disciples a very important question. And I imagine this, he maybe, he maybe kind of sits them around. They're on their journey. This is just my vision of what's happening. It's not in the text, but this is, this is me. You know, he maybe sits them around. They're having lunch. Uh, they're on their way. And he asks them a question. And he says this. He says, disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, Jesus is saying, all right, guys, you've been living with me a while. You've been doing ministry with me for a while. What's the word out on the street? What are people saying about me? Who do people think I am? What's, what's the word on the street? There's been a lot of confusion about Jesus, the Messiah, by the way, so far in Matthew. Jesus has been so slowly revealing who he is. And so he's saying, what are people saying about me? And they say this, well, verse 12. Um, so there's confusion about Jesus. There's confusion about Jesus, and it's going to be clarified. Verse 14. And the disciples, they said to him, well, some say you're John the Baptist, come back to life from the dead, and others say you're Elijah, kind of coming at the end of the age. Elijah was an Old Testament prophet. Others say you're Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an Old 
Testament prophets, or they just say you're just some type of a prophet. So, so folks, they don't know exactly who this Jesus guy is. There are all sorts of guesses about who Jesus is, what he's doing, what his mission is, what he's about, what he's like, who he is. And Jesus is now going to turn the question around back onto the disciples in verse 15, and he says this, but who do you say that I am? And this is a very important question by to ask ourselves, who do we say that Jesus is? Who is Jesus to you? And Peter's going to respond um, with the correct answer, with an absolute clarity to the point where you're like, whoa, Peter actually got it right here. <laughs> um, and he, Peter says this, he's going to respond to Jesus. To Jesus' question, who do you say I am? Peter says this, verse 16. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is like the most loaded Old Testament like, sen like sentence, pulling a bunch of stuff from the Old Testament. This is the most loaded ten sentence, I think, practically in Scripture. But Peter, he, he hits the nail on the head. He gets an A+. plus. We give Peter an A+, plus. Peter. Way to go. And what is he saying who Jesus is? He's saying that Jesus is the promised messianic king, the Christ, the son of the living God, God in the flesh, God amongst us. We're going to see that Peter doesn't really totally understand what this mean, means later on. But right now, Peter's got an A. And Jesus is going to respond to Peter's correct response. And we're going to need to do some unpacking here because the verses that come are probably the most hotly debated verses in the church. And so we're going to need to do some unpacking about what this means that Jesus is this messianic king. And we're going to see that he's a king with a mission. But first of all, I want to make a caveat. There's debate on this text back and forth uh, between, um, we'd say, like the Roman Catholic Church and Protestants. And I want to just say very, very clearly, though we disagree, um, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're on the same team. We have a disagreement here. Um, I want to preface it with that. So what is Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is going to say that he promises as the king to build his church through his power and the disciples' work. And so we find Jesus' response to Peter, Peter's confession that he's the Christ, the son of the living God, in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, Peter, saying, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which this is the formal name of Simon. This is Simon, the son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Does it sound like Jesus is pleased with Peter's response? What do you guys think? He's very pleased. He's like, Peter, yes, you are right. Very right. And Jesus also reveals that this response, well, who's this response come from? Does it come from Peter? Who's it come from? God the Father, right? God the Father's revealed this to you. It hasn't come from you, Peter. It's, come, it's been given to you by the Father, um, which faith is always given by the Father. And in the next two verses, Jesus is going to flesh out the, the, the importance, the, the gravity of this, this confession of Peter and its meaning. So verse 18, Jesus says this, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So let's look at this verse. Let's start in the first section of 18, the first part. What is the rock 
in which Jesus is going to build his church on. There's, there's debate here among Christians. So a, a Roman Catholic would say that, that this verse is referring to uh, Peter and the Petrine line, which is a succession of popes, the papacy. So God is going to build his church on, this, on Peter, this Petrine line of, of popes. I, I, I don't think we get this from the text. Um, I understand where they're coming from, but I don't think we get this. Surely if, if this is what Jesus meant, that I'm going to build my church on Peter, he would have said something along the lines of, you are Peter and upon you I will build my church. But he doesn't say that. So what is he saying? Well, others would argue that we should take these words of Peter, uh, I will build my church on the rock, and we need to put it in the context of Matthew's gospel as a whole. So, and they would make a point that Jesus says this in Matthew 7, 24 through 25, that the man who builds his life upon a Jesus is like building it upon a rock, putting it in context. So throughout the whole gospel, the teaching of Jesus is to be taken with utmost seriousness. There's never a hint that it is to be taken lightly by its followers. So the rock then would be building upon the correct understanding of Jesus and his teaching. Or others view that the teaching of Jesus in mind here, um, he's, he's referring to himself as the rock. We, we get this in 1 Corinthians 10.4, for example, or uh, 1 Peter 2.6-8, or Jesus is the foundation in 1 Corinthians 3.11, or 2 Timothy 2.19. So, so what is it? Where, what, what is the rock? Because if we're building a church, if God's building his church on a rock, we need to know what it is, right? This is important stuff. Um, it, it seems like there, there is truth in more than one way of looking at these words. Now, I, I want to say, by the way, there's no doubt that Peter is assigned to preeminence among the apostles. He's the leader. Uh, we see this in, in, in the beginning chapters of Acts. But I don't think it's an absolute preeminence that we must, and we must be very careful in defining it. And in any case, there's no mention of a successor of Peter in Scripture. So whatever position is assigned to him is, is personal and not transmissible to those who would succeed Peter. Jesus is speaking of the apostle himself and not those who would follow him, in my opinion. We see him doing things in Acts 2 and 3 where it's preaching uh, brought uh, many into the kingdom. Acts 10, Peter opens the way uh, uh, to the Gentiles with Cornelius coming in. So Jesus certainly uses Peter in a role to open the kingdom of God to many through his teaching and preaching. But I don't think we see evidence in Scripture that this is some sort of permanent office to be passed down. Rather, a temporary office and really the prototype for all who are to come in the church. So what is the point of this text? The, the rock in which Jesus is building his church on. It's the confession of Peter. Jesus is building his church on the confession of Peter that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus acknowledges that, that Peter is going to play a significant role, but he's not the rock. It's built on Jesus. Jesus alone is the rock in which the church is built upon. The Messiah. It's the gospel of Jesus and Jesus Christ himself. He is the rock, the cornerstone, the foundation, the everything when it comes to the church. Jesus will build his church and he, he alone is the foundation. And that's good news. And we're going to see Next, that he says, I'm going to build my church. 
I'm going to do it, Jesus says. It's Jesus' church. He's going to build it. It's his. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is the most encouraging thing you can possibly hear today. Jesus is building his church through his power, doing work through individual churches and individual people with the capital C universal church. The church is not a building, by the way. It's a people. And notice here, is this a defeated church? This is a victorious church. God's church, you are going to be victorious through Jesus. And Jesus is going to use local people in the local church to push back the very gates of hell. And Jesus is going to be victorious. And because you belong to Jesus, what does that mean is going to be true for you? You are going to be victorious. Next, Jesus says that he's going to use those in the church. And he's actually going to give you power and authority. He says this in verse 19. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Once again, these keys and power cannot be strictly given to Peter. The right to bind and loose here is connected with the gift of the keys. And it is given to the disciples as a whole, the whole community of God's believers, the church, the bride of Christ. Matthew 18 repeats this, and this is clearly given to all people. It says this in Matthew 18, 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That, that's where to think of the keys as given to all believers. The keys, by the way, are the gospel message and what Jesus has done. They're Jesus' gift. We hold, brothers and sisters, the message of salvation through Christ alone, through faith alone, as the keys to the kingdom. Therefore, we hold metaphorical keys that allow people to enter. It is the church that holds the power of the gospel message. It is the church empowered by the Spirit to bind and loose. It is all Christians. Every one of you has this power to bind and loose. Everyone. If you, have, if you are a Christ follower, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The response to Peter's confession from Jesus is a resounding yes, yes, that he indeed is the Messiah and King. He is the Lord, and he reigns, and he will reign, and he continues to reign. And Jesus is going to build his victorious church, and nothing, nothing, nothing will stand in its way, not even the devil himself, not even the very gates of hell. King Jesus is going to be victorious through his power, empowering ordinary people he calls the church. This is the assembly of God's people, advancing the kingdom of light, pushing back the kingdom of darkness, Satan's kingdom, through God's power and God's work in their midst. I find that absolutely astonishing and amazing. And then verse 20, it says this. He strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. We have like the reach, the pinnacle of Christology basically in Matthew. 
Peter gets it right. Jesus is like, yeah, I'm going to build my church. I'm doing it, and I'm going to do it through you. And then he's like, don't tell anyone. And I imagine the disciples are like, what? What? Why are we not supposed to tell anyone, Jesus? Like, this is a big deal. There's a reason. There's a reason why Jesus doesn't want them to tell anyone. And it's twofold. Jesus, there are so many uh, ideas attached to the messianic hero king that's to come. And Jesus is defining who he is because there's misconceptions of the messianic hero king to come. And Jesus doesn't want those misconceptions to get tied into his true identity. And so he's very intentional about how this information comes out. He doesn't want people to know who he is until we're going to see he has died and he has been raised and he has ascended and has been seated at the right hand of the Father. Secondly, we see that Jesus doesn't want the church to go out and act until they have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment to do what he's calling them to do. And that's what we're going to get to next. So Jesus says, don't tell anyone. And the disciples are like, why, Jesus? That, that's crazy. And, he's gonna, and we're going to find out why. So we're going to see that the kingdom doesn't come through how would we expect. It's not what we would expect. It's something different. So immediately after this, this, this by the way, is a narrative text just kind of thrown in here. But it's describing the reasoning why Jesus didn't want the disciples to tell anyone. It says this. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. What, why is that here? We're like talking about a victorious king and then all of a sudden we're talking about Jesus' death. Because we have to understand his kingship and what he's about, his mission. So the kingdom does not come about how we would expect. Now, if you, by the way, if you guys were going to go and establish a king, a kingship and a kingdom, what would you do? How would you establish it? You'd probably raise an army, right? This is what's happened in human history. It's what Russia is trying to do now in Ukraine. Raise an army and, and conquer more territory or, 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 you know, or you'd have a revolution and you'd, you'd raise up a people inside and kick out those that are holding you back. Maybe there'd be some great nation-building project that comes alongside of it. This is what the Jewish people were expecting. They were expecting a hero king in the line of David who was going to come and absolutely whip the Romans' butts and kick them out, and they were going to get back a physical land that was going to be there, and there's going to be a great nation-building project and, and this cultural revolution in Israel when the Romans are booted out. But that's not how the kingdom of God comes. It comes in the most unlikely ways through the hero king dying in the place of his people. Dying for his people. The rightful king. The perfect king. The, the son of the living God. That king, that messianic king, dying for his people. Peter and the disciples were looking for a kingdom through force. But that kingdom was too narrow-minded. Just kicking out the Romans 
and establishing a nation does not solve humanity's problem. It does not solve the problem of sin. It does not problem solve the problem of Satan. And it doesn't accomplish God's purpose of the kingdom going to the ends of the earth. We don't need a warrior king that's going to murder a bunch of, kill a bunch of Romans. We don't need an earthly hero king. We need the God king, Jesus. And Peter now attempts to rebuke Jesus. He's like, Jesus, you, you, you can't, don't, no, that's not going to happen. Peter's like, Jesus, far be that from happening to you, Lord. That shall never happen to you. And Jesus responds that though Peter understands the Messiah, he doesn't understand the role of this, this hero king that's going to save his people, who's going to build his kingdom. And, and Jesus completely rebukes Peter outright. He says this, he says, Peter, he turns to me and says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Peter, you don't understand it. You know who I am, but you don't understand what I'm about. Jesus' power does not come through force of arms, but as the true hero king, he rescues his people, not through military might, but through dying in their place defeating not an enemy of Rome, but our greatest enemy of Satan, sin and death, breaking the power of sin that holds us captive and shattering it to a million pieces, completely destroying and overpowering it. Our problem as humans is not mainly political or an issue of military force. It is our sin nature. It is Satan and the kingdom of darkness. And that is what Jesus overcomes through his life, death, and resurrection. So Jesus is the true hero king, the king we need, the greatest of all hero kings, because he solves our greatest problem, leading us from death to life so that we may truly live, and not just live, but empower us to bring other people into that kingdom so that they may truly live. Do you know that when someone puts their faith in Jesus, they're leaving the kingdom of darkness and they're entering into the kingdom of light? When someone puts their faith and trust in Jesus, they're brought back to life in the ultimate sense, sealed with Christ and his death, awaiting resurrection and eternity with God, victorious in Christ, waiting for the risen Jesus to return that victory, that is the victory we need. And that is the victory, Christian, that you have through the empowering of God to share with others. That is the keys to the kingdom. That is what you have, that good news of Jesus. There is nothing else worth living for in this life like King Jesus. There's nothing else worth living for than the kingdom of heaven. He alone is worthy, worthy of giving up everything that we have, dedicating our lives to hero King Jesus, who does what we need most. I have a few takeaways for us this morning, application points. Number one is this. Jesus Christ, Christ the Messiah, Jesus, is the rightful Lord of all. He's the rightful Lord of all. This text clearly teaches that Jesus was no normal man, but the God-man, the Messiah, the Messianic King, who would come to save his people. 
He is therefore the rightful Lord of all things, and because of that, he deserves our entire lives, our entire being, and our entire loyalty. And he's worth it. In the text right after this, Jesus demands that we lay down our lives and pick up our cross and follow him. And I would encourage you to do that this morning. He's worth it. Nothing else is worth living for like living for Jesus, building his kingdom, living for his kingdom. He alone is worthy of giving everything up for. If you're striving for anything else in this life, it is always going to let you down. But Jesus never will. Secondly is this. We, you, Christian, you have the keys to the kingdom. You have Christ's authority given to you. When Paul says that you are ambassadors of Christ, he means the exact same thing. You have Christ-given authority. Do you know that? The question is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? What does it mean to have God, to, for God's church to have the keys to the kingdom to bind and to loose, as Jesus says, using that language? This means that the role of the church, your job is to make disciples. And when you do, you're freeing people from slavery, slavery to sin and death. Our goal as a church is not to hunker down in the church building waiting for Jesus to return. We are to rather to step out in victory because of Christ, empowered by him to drive cultural change, to lead others to Jesus, to change our local culture where we're at. We do this primarily through sharing the gospel and inviting others to come be saved by Jesus and then to join into the work of what God is doing in this world. You can do this through simple ways. Start a Bible study at your house or your, your, your office place and invite an unchurched neighbor over, have coffee with them and share these things with them. Invite them to church. Share the gospel message clearly with your neighbors. We also do this by living in a manner as, as though we belong to the kingdom of God. We live out the ethics of the kingdom that are taught in Scripture in our daily lives as we interact with others. We live as Christ followers with Jesus as our king. R.C. Sproul says this, the only way the kingdom of God is going to be made manifest in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. So live that way. Live out the ethics of your kingdom in your family, in your workplace, in your relationship with your neighbors and those around you. Act like a Christian. Live like a Christian. And Jesus is your king. That, that is another way to show people what the kingdom of God is like, inviting them in through your lives. And I want to close in this. Christian, we should live in a victorious manner. This should be a great encouragement to you. You are victorious because Christ has won the battle. The outcome is set in stone. Jesus is going to build his church through his people. Jesus has destroyed the power of Satan, the gates of hell, death, sin. Satan can no longer overcome you. We are victorious not through ourselves, but through the hero King Jesus. Because 
Because of this, we can look at the craziness of the world around us and not totally understand everything that's happening, not totally get God's plan, but we can realize and know we are victorious and connected with Jesus forever and our true enemy is destroyed. This one gives us hope. It gives you hope in the most dire of circumstances. When you get the worst news from the doctor, you're still victorious in Christ. When you lose a family member you love, you're still victorious in Christ. When your job stinks and you're miserable and it's hard, you are still victorious in Christ no matter the circumstances. Two, it gives us an important hopeful message to share with others that they too can be victorious. And three, being victorious should spur us towards the work and the mission that Jesus has called the church to do in the community around us and the world. I want you to leave this place with a victorious mindset, not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done on your behalf. And I want you to share with those that you run into that King Jesus, the hero king, has come. And he has made a way for them to have a relationship with God, to fix their biggest problem, to unite them with Christ, and to invite them to come and do God's work of the kingdom here on this earth. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. God, we, we thank you that you, you built into our, our heart, our soul, our very core of our nature, the desire for a hero. And you are that hero, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you love us enough to save us and rescue us. That you love us enough to destroy the power of Satan and death through your life, death, and resurrection. That you love us enough to invite us to come and participate through your power and what you are doing in the world. That's the best news. That we get to belong to you and participate in you redeeming and restoring a people to yourself through your power for your glory. God, help us to grasp that, to understand that, to tuck that away in our hearts so that we may live victorious in our daily lives, not through our own actions, but because you are the victorious king and we belong to you. We thank you and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.